The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, welcome back. We were on break for the Thanksgiving holiday, but we are back today, and we are continuing our study of Paul's epistle to the Romans, and today we pick up at Romans chapter 10, beginning at verse 14. So if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open them to Romans chapter 10, beginning at verse 14. Paul writes, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul has just made this extraordinary statement in the previous verse that there is no distinction between Jews and Greeks for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's an extraordinary statement. We pointed out that in the 19th century, that was a very divided society in Great Britain. If you read any of the novels of, John, of Jane Austen, you realize that there are great divisions between the aristocracy and those who were the gentry class and the gentry class and the working class. There were those great dividing walls. But those were nothing compared to the dividing walls that existed in the first century. At least half of the population in the first century was enslaved to the other half of the population. There was no such thing as a middle class in first century society. Uh, there were haves and there were have-nots. There wouldn't even be a middle class really until the 19th century in the Industrial Revolution. There were great dividing walls in the first century. Jews despised Greeks, Greeks despised Romans, Romans despised Greeks. Everybody looked down on everybody else. And the remarkable thing about the gospel is that the gospel, as it was preached throughout the world, brought those dividing walls of hostility, as Paul described them, down. And that's because, in God's eyes, we're all the same. That is to say, we are all sinners, we are all in need of redemption, nobody's plate is clean. And so Paul makes this wonderful proclamation here in Romans chapter 10 that anyone, Jew, slave, Greek, whatever it is, whoever calls on the Lord will be saved. But then Paul asks this question. It's a rhetorical question, but it's an important question. But how will they call on him whom they have not heard? Paul now begins to talk about the necessity of mission work. And as I thought about this, I thought about the necessity of mission work and what Paul is saying to us here about those who bring the good news. I was reminded of the story of one Henry Martin, 
That may not be a name that you are familiar with, but Henry Martin was a remarkable man. He was a remarkable young man. Uh, his father was a clerk. He lived in the early part of the 19th century in Britain. Uh, his father was a clerk, and, um, but he was a young man who had great aptitude for language. He was a bright young man, and he gained a position at Cambridge University. And he went off to Cambridge, and he did very well. And it was there at Cambridge that he actually came under the influence of people who were evangelical Christians, and he himself was converted. And while at Cambridge, he decided that he would go into the ministry of the Church of England, and ultimately he did. He was ordained a minister in the Church of England after he had gained his degree, and his first job was as a curate at Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge. Now, you may have heard of that church because it had one of the most famous ministers in the history of the Church of England. The man's name was Charles Simeon. Now, Simeon in and of himself has a remarkable story. Um, he came from a very wealthy family. Um, his family was not happy when he became a Christian and decided to go into the ministry, but he did. And he ultimately was named, the bishop, or the bishop named him, the vicar of Holy Trinity Church, Cambridge. But he had such an evangelical zeal that the wardens weren't thrilled about him. The bishop felt that he would be a good young man to place there and sort of straighten the place out. It was sort of, you know, uh, filled with a great many academics, people who prided themselves on their knowledge and so forth. And Charles Simeon was a bright young man. He himself was a Cambridge graduate. Uh, but they didn't like his zeal. You know, it's all right to be religious, but not too religious. And that was the case with many of the people living in Cambridge at that time. And um, he was a man who was regarded as being as zealous as the Wesley brothers, and that was troublesome to many people. And so even though they placed him there as the vicar of Holy Trinity Cambridge, the wardens who held the keys to the church refused to give him access to the building. Uh, so here he was, the rector or the vicar of the place, but he wasn't even allowed to go into the church building. The wardens locked him out. So what did he do? Well, he held services on the street corner. He preached week in and week out on the street corner. Now you say, for how long did he do that? For over three years. Until the wardens decided that that was even more embarrassing than his zeal, and so they ultimately left him into the building, and he would go on to have a profound and lasting impact, not only on Cambridge, but on the entire Church of England. He would become one of the most influential ministers of the gospel in the history of the Church of England. It's been said that he had more of an impact for the sake of the gospel than any bishop or archbishop in the history of the church. That was Charles Simeon, a remarkable man. Well, Simeon was at the high point of his ministry when young Henry Martin was assigned as his curate, his assisting priest. And it was under the influence of Charles Simeon that Henry Martin really felt that God was laying on him a burden to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And in that time period, one of the places that was regarded as the end of the earth was India. And so Henry Martin, as a young man in his late 20s, decided that that's what he was going to do. He was going to go to India. As I said, while he was at Cambridge, he had an aptitude for languages, 
And so he thought that he could use that aptitude to translate the scriptures into the native Indian languages and share the gospel with the people of that place. Britain, of course, was making inroads in India at this time. The East India Company was trading with many people in India, and there were contacts there. And so he became a chaplain for that company and decided to go to India. He was never a man of strong constitution. Um, he was sickly. He had issues. Many people advised him against going. They said, you'll die if you go. And he said, I would rather burn out for Christ. And so he decided that that is exactly what he would do, he would go. Now in those days, going from London to Calcutta took a long time. As a matter of fact, it took 308 days, almost a year, because there were various places that you had to travel through and so forth, and um, it was difficult. But he used those 308 days to teach himself Urdu and other languages. And um, by the time that he arrived in India, he was proficient in the language, and he began to immediately translate the scriptures into the native languages and to share the gospel. He would pave the way for others like William and Carey and others who would come and be great missionaries in India. But the man who really laid the foundation for all of this was this young man, Henry Martin. Well, while he was there, he became sick. Um, he suffered from consumption. And the doctors that were nearby with the East India Company recommended that he go to a different climate. And so he decided to travel um, throughout the region at that time, to try to travel to the Middle East and other places in order to regain his strength. But he didn't actually do it. Uh, he became sick, and ultimately he died. But as I said, he laid the foundation for mission work. And he was one of the first, really, English missionaries to begin to preach the gospel to the Muslims in that part of the world and to really build bridges with Muslim people in that part of the world. He was a remarkable young man. He died at the age of 31. So, very young man. And uh, he was buried over there, not even by English people, but buried by Armenian Christians. Well, go back now to England and to Charles Simeon. When Simeon received the news of this, he was just heartbroken. Uh, this was a young man that he had trained. This was a young man that he felt as though was a son in the faith to him. He was a father to young Henry Martin. And he had seen sketches of Martin that had come back from his time in India. And the man looked like a cadaver. I mean, his face was all sunken, and if you see pictures of Henry Martin, that's how he looks. His face is all sunken, and you can see his cheekbones. He had a sallow complexion. And Charles Simeon commissioned one of the foremost painters of the day to paint a portrait of Henry Martin, looking just like that. And he hung that portrait prominently in his study. And so anyone who came to visit this prominent minister of the gospel, Charles Simeon, and many people were seeking him out by this point in his ministry, they would come into his office and they would see this portrait hanging above the mantle. This man that, as I said, looked like a corpse. And everybody would say, well, who is that? And Simeon would always have the same response. He would say, look at him. Look at his eyes. That is Henry Martin. And his eyes tell me 
that I am not to toy with this gospel. That this gospel is the word of life to those who are perishing. His eyes tell me to be earnest, to be earnest for the gospel of Christ. Well, that is exactly what Paul is telling us here in Romans chapter 10. He is telling us that we are not to toy with this gospel. We are to be in earnest that this is the gospel of life to those who are perishing. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? It has been said that the church exists by mission as a fire exists by burning. You're really not being the church. We are really not being the church if we are not engaged in the work of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with the whole world. And that's what Paul wants to talk about here in this section. Now, what Paul is going to do here in these verses is he is going to give us what theologians sometimes refer to as the ordo salutis. Now, it's not, there are different ways of looking at this, but basically uh, an order of salvation. Now, you could do that doctrinally. Uh, you can talk about conversion, you can talk about justification, you can talk about sanctification, you can talk about election, all of those things, and talk about the order of salvation, how that actually works out in an individual's life. Paul is not going to do that doctrinally here, but he is going to talk about how it happens practically speaking in terms of the sharing of the gospel. He's going to talk about the steps that are necessary in order for a person to come to faith. Every person who comes to faith has to experience precisely these steps, Paul says. Now, in order to make his point of how a person is saved, he's going to work backward. He's going to start with a person who is saved and work back to the point where they first came to hear the gospel. So it's an order of salvation, but it's an order of salvation, if you will, in reverse. The first thing that Paul says is this, a person who is saved is a person who has called upon Christ, is a person who has called upon Christ. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? A person who is saved must be a person who calls on Christ. Now, what does that mean, calls on Christ? It means to place your trust in Jesus Christ. We said that biblical faith really has three components to it. We refer to these in Latin terms, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Notitia is just another word for knowledge. You have to know what you believe. Ascensus is you have to be in agreement with your knowledge of the faith. And the third part, fiducia, means you have to Trust. It's possible, you see, to stand up in church on Sunday and say the words of the apostles or the Nicene Creed without ever crossing your fingers. 
And what that means is, yes, you understand that this is what Christians believe. The creeds are the bare minimum that must be believed in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You might say, well, yes, I understand that the church believes that there is one God, the Father, the creator of the heavens and the earth. There is one Son, Jesus Christ, who died upon the cross and rose again for our justification. We do understand that, yes, the church believes there is one Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. You might say, oh, yes, I understand that's what the church believes. You have a knowledge of the faith. You might even say that I agree that those things are true. I believe in the Trinity. I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. But those two things, while they are important, they are not sufficient. One more thing is necessary in order for a person to be saved. You not only have to understand the faith, you not only have to agree with the faith, you have to place your trust in the faith. You have to place your faith, your trust, your confidence in Jesus Christ. That is what Paul says. Everyone who is saved at one point or another has actually made a personal decision for Jesus Christ. Now, it may be true that some of you have been raised in the church your whole life, and you look back over the course of your life, and you cannot remember a time when you did not trust in Jesus Christ. Not everybody, in other words, has a Pauline conversion on the road to Damascus. But there does come a point where you recognize, as you look back over the course of your life, where you own the faith for yourself. The faith that was passed on to you by your parents or by your grandparents was a faith that you took as your own. And Paul says that is essential to everyone who is saved. They have to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have to place their trust in him. Well, let me ask you the question, have you done that? Have you personally placed your trust in Jesus Christ? You've heard me say many times before, Christianity is not something that you inherit. It can be passed on to you, the faith. Paul talks about that with young Timothy, the faith that lived in his mother and his grandmother, but ultimately that was a faith that Timothy had to own for himself. That's why we do things the way we do them in the church. Children are baptized in our tradition, but we do understand that that does not mean that automatically they are saved, ex opera operato. It does not automatically mean that their ticket is punched and they're on their way to heaven. There comes a point where they have to own that faith for themselves. And that's why we have confirmation. Where the person will come in an age of accountability before the bishop who is the representative of the church. And they will own the faith that their parents claimed for them at their baptism. They will own that faith for themselves. Well, Paul says that's what has to happen with us. You have to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he says, before you can call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Before you can call on Christ, place your trust in him, you have to know who Christ is. This is that notitia part of faith. It is the knowledge of who Jesus is. It's been said that in the beginning, God created man in his own image. And ever since, we have been endeavoring to return the favor. That is to say, we have been creating God in our own image. 
There are many people who claim to know Jesus Christ, but the Jesus Christ that they claim to know is a Jesus Christ of their own making. And what Paul is saying is that in order to call upon the true Jesus Christ and thereby be saved, you must know who Jesus Christ is. You must know Jesus Christ not as the world presents him, as some great prophet or some great moral exemplar, but you must know Jesus Christ as the one who is revealed by God in the Scriptures. And who is that Jesus Christ? The Son of God. Not enough to believe that Jesus is just a great teacher, a great prophet, and that's what many people believe. You know, there are very few people out there in the world who would denigrate Jesus. There are many people out there who will say Jesus is a great figure. Muslims believe that Jesus Christ is a great figure, a great prophet, but they do not believe that he is the Son of God. Not only is he is the Son of God, but we also believe that he is the sacrifice for our sins. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not one. And the wages of sin is death. And there is only one means by which you and I can be delivered from God's judgment and wrath because of our sin. And that is by an atoning sacrifice which Jesus Christ has provided. He has made peace by his blood shed upon the cross. John chapter 14 in a passage that was always read at funerals, but we have in many places, you'll notice they'll read these verses, but they'll cut off the last part of it. But in John chapter 14, Jesus says something rather extraordinary. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. You go to many churches today and you'll hear them say, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and then they stop. They leave off that last part because it is what theologians refer to as the scandal of radical particularity. It is scandalous, isn't it? I mean, it's one thing to say that Jesus is a way. Jesus is a truth. Jesus is a life. It's, it's perfectly legitimate to say Jesus is the way for me, but he may not necessarily be the way for you. Jesus, you know, I think is the most direct route, but he's not the only route. All rivers of faith eventually flow into the great same sea. Well, that's not what Jesus says. In John chapter 14, he says, I am the way, I'm the truth. He doesn't say, I am a way, a truth. He said, I am the way, the truth. The definite article is there. I am the life. And furthermore, no one comes to the Father but by me. It's not a case where there are many ways to God. There is one way to God, and every other way is a dead end. Now, do I realize that that is scandalous? Of course. Do I realize that in our politically correct, woke culture, that is offensive? Absolutely. But that's not the issue. The issue is, is it true? And what we need to contend with is the fact that this is the claim of Jesus Christ. This is what he claimed. So when we talk about believing in Christ, that's the Christ that we're talking about believing in. Not the Christ of the culture, but the Christ of the scriptures. Son of God, sacrifice for sin, the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only way to God the Father. So Paul says if you're going to be saved, you have to trust in Christ personally. It's not something that anyone can do on your behalf. 
But before you can do that, you need to understand the one in whom you are trusting, who he really is. But he says, before you can believe in him, and before you can place your faith in him, you have to hear him. That's the third part of this order of salvation. You've got to hear him. And it's really interesting when you read this in the Greek, because many translations say, and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? But that's not actually what the Greek says. The Greek and the new AS, the new American Standard Bible actually gets this correct. It actually says, and how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? It's not a matter of simply hearing about Christ. It's a matter of actually hearing Christ. In order for a person to come to know Christ and to place their trust in Christ, they have to hear Christ. See, this is not some sort of academic exercise that we're engaged in. This is actually something relational. So Paul is saying we have to trust in Christ. In order to trust in Christ, we have to believe who he is and understand who he is, but we will never be able to do that unless we have what? Heard him. Heard him speak to us. Now, we have to be cautious here because somebody might say, well, that's a very subjective thing. You know, people say all sorts of things. Oh, well, God told me this. Or God said I should do that. Well, Paul sets a safeguard against that kind of subjectivism. What is the safeguard? He talks about the good news. He says, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear him without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We need to understand that God will never say anything that is contrary to what he has already said. Now, you and I can contradict ourselves all the time. And we frequently do. We'll say one thing at one moment... And one thing in another moment, that is not the way it is with God. That is why the scriptures are so essential to the life of the church. You know, people will sometimes say, well, the Holy Spirit is doing a new thing. Well, that's fine. The Holy Spirit can do a new thing. But the Holy Spirit's never going to do anything that contradicts what he did in the olden days. God is always consistent he does not contradict himself. So whatever it is that Christ is saying to us, it's only the Spirit of Christ if it is in accord with the Word of Christ. So these things are essential if a person is going to be saved. They have to call on Christ personally. They have to know who Christ is in order to call on him. In order to know who he is, they have to hear the word of Christ proclaimed. They have to hear the word of Christ proclaimed. And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? 
Now, that word preach is an interesting word. Of course, it involves a verbal proclamation. And in the first century, that was the primary means by which the gospel was made known to people. Remember, this was in an age before radio, in an age before television, in an age before uh, the internet. The way that people heard news, they didn't have newspapers in the first century. They didn't have telegraphs in the first century. The way that people heard news was how? Word of mouth. And so that's what Paul is talking about here. He says in order for somebody to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and believe in him and place their trust in him, somebody has to tell them about Christ. There has to be a verbal proclamation. Now, we live in an age where there are all sorts of ways of communicating with people. You can communicate via the radio. You can communicate via the television. You can communicate by means of social media. You name it. We have any number of means. And it's instant communication. We don't have to wait for something to be telegraphed across the Atlantic Ocean. We can get the information instantly. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? You can communicate instantly with somebody that's on the other side of the world. I communicate with my son, who is a Marine officer who is stationed over in Okinawa, and I can get an immediate response, provided that he's up. An immediate response. That's extraordinary to me. It's almost, in a previous age, it would have been like magic. So there are other means of proclaiming the gospel in our day that we can use. We can use books. We can use magazines. We can use the internet. And indeed, many of these things have been employed in the proclamation of the gospel. As Christians, we have no excuse for not sharing the gospel. We have all sorts of ways of doing that. But I want to say this, that does not mean that these things are a substitute for a verbal sharing of the good news. Two reasons why they are not a substitute. One is because Christianity is a personal matter. You've heard me say that before. It's not a private matter. When people come to me and say, well, I don't really talk about my faith because it's a private matter. I want you to understand that is not a Christian understanding of what it means to be a disciple. It's not a private matter. Jesus' last words to his disciples were what? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. So it's not a private matter, but it is a deeply personal matter. You must place your faith in Jesus Christ. And because it is a deeply personal matter, sharing the faith personally with another person is far more effective than something that just comes over the airwaves. Now, I've known that many people have come to faith that way. They've heard a Billy Graham sermon on the internet, or they've heard Alistair Begg or Tim Keller or somebody like that, or they've listened to a podcast and they've heard the gospel. God can use any means, but primarily he uses other people. And there's no more effective way to do that than with the people that are in your orbit, your sphere of influence. That's far more effective. So there's no substitute for the verbal sharing of the gospel. So look at this order of salvation again. In order for a person to be saved, Paul says they must place their trust in Jesus Christ. How will they call on him? But in order to call on him, they must 
believe in him. They must understand who he is and what he came to do. And how are they to believe of whom they have never heard? That is to say that Christ has to speak to them. How does he speak? Not exclusively, but primarily through what? His word. And how will they ever hear his word unless somebody goes out and shares that with them? Are we in earnest about this gospel? That's why Henry Martin went to India. He went to India because there were people who had not heard the gospel. And if they had not heard Christ speaking in the gospel, they could not believe in Christ. And if they could not believe in Christ, they could not place their trust in Christ. And if they could not place their trust in Christ, they could not be what? They could not be saved. They were perishing. And God put that burden on his heart to go and take the gospel to those people. If you're a believer today, it's because somebody somewhere along the line shared the faith with you. Will you share the faith with others? That is why the sending of missionaries into the world is absolutely essential. That's what that word missionary means. It means sent ones, people who are sent out. Now, it's important that we understand the difference between mission and outreach because sometimes we confuse the two. There is a difference between mission and outreach. What is outreach? Outreach is basically acts of mercy, which we do as Christians. We have compassion on those who are less fortunate than ourselves, and so we care for them. We provide for their needs. We provide for those who are in want, and we do that in the name of Jesus Christ, and that is an important part of the Christian life, but that is different from mission. Mission is specifically the taking of the gospel to those who have not heard it. Now, let me show you a distinction between these two. Keep your finger there in Romans. We're going to turn to the book of Acts for just a moment. And I want you to take a look at Acts chapter 2, and then I want you to look at Acts chapter 13. So, Acts chapter 2. And we're going to begin at verse 42. This, this is a familiar passage to many people. Is a description of the church in those early days. Now, you understand that this is the end of Acts chapter 2. How does Acts chapter 2 begin? It begins with the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is often referred to as the birthday of the church. So, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 44 are really describing the church just after its birth. This is the early days of the church. This is the church in its fledgling years. And here's what we're told about that church. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Those are the things that they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that is, to the word of God, to fellowship, that is, to community, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. That is a reference to worship. Breaking of bread would be holy communion, prayers. That's what they devoted themselves 
Look at verse 43 and following. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, or day by day those who were being saved. That is a picture of a church that is growing, but it is a church that is growing primarily how? By outreach. It's by people simply living the Christian life in their community. They're breaking bread where? In their homes. They're caring for each other. Some people have said this is the first example of communism. It is not the first example of communism. We're told that they held all things in common, but communism is a forced sharing. This isn't even socialism. These people have such concern for one another that if there's anybody in their midst, anybody in their fellowship that has need, they're doing what? They're selling what they have and providing for the needs of the brethren. And we're told the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Why was the church growing when they really weren't going out into the world and preaching the gospel? I'll tell you why. It's because in that culture, they saw the Christians caring for one another in a way that the world did not care for other people. And the unbelieving world was provoked to jealousy. <laughs> In the first century world, if, if a widow was left with no means at her disposal, she perished. There, there were no people, there were no, there were no agencies, there was no social security in that day. People died. They starved to death. They starved for want of food and clothing. They died as a result of exposure. And here were these Christians who cared for each other, not even members of their own family, but for these people. And they cared for one another. And those on the outside said, I don't know what it is that they have, but whatever it is, I want to be a part of that. And they came in and they said, what is it that you have that I don't have? Why do you Christians love each other the way that you love each other? And then they were, had the opportunity to share the gospel, but they shared the gospel as the opportunities presented themselves. That's outreach, and there is a place for it, and it is necessary. But that's different from mission. Mission is what we see several chapters later in Acts chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and what? Sent them off. There is the word. Sent. A missionary is a sent one. For the first time, when you get to Acts chapter 13, you find the church sending people out to reach what we would call unreached people groups. Both of these things are necessary. Mission and outreach. 
But mission is where you send out people to take the gospel to those who have never heard it. Now, for many of us, when we think about missionaries, we think about those who go overseas. To far-flung territories, to distant lands, to exotic places, to the dark continents. Well, I want to suggest to you that we're living in a culture in which you do not have to go all that far to find a foreign culture. And if you don't believe me, you just walk up Upper King Street on a Friday or a Saturday night. When all of those students from the College of Charleston are up there at the bars and partying. If you don't believe that young people today are from a different culture than one, the one that most of us grew up in, just go up there sometime. You'll discover that they dress differently. <laughs> You'll discover that they talk differently. You'll discover that they communicate differently. It is a foreign culture. And it is the first generation in this nation's history that is, for the most part, largely unchurched. They have not heard. And anybody who is sent to them is sent as a missionary. Incidentally, that's one of the things that we have started here at St. Philip's and we support as a part of our diocesan ministry. We support the brand new full-time campus minister on the campus of the College of Charleston. To do what? To take the gospel to these people who have not heard it. So having heard it, they can then believe it. And having believed it, they can place their trust in Jesus Christ and find in him the very thing their hearts desire. The church is not being the church, my friends, if we are not doing both of those things. Outreach and mission. And the only way that you can do both of those effectively is if you are willing to get into the trenches. You are willing to get to know people. Can't do outreach if you don't know what people need. And you can't do mission work unless you are willing to go, like Henry Martin, and expend yourself in the service of Christ and his gospel. Here's some important texts for us to remember when we think about mission and the church. The first is the necessity of the gospel proclamation. Go to the end of Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 16 is Mark's version of the Great Commission. Beginning at verse 14. Pertinent verses are 15 and following, but verse 14. Afterward, Jesus appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. Why do we need to share the gospel? Well, we need to share the gospel with other people. We need to send out missionaries. We ourselves need to be sent ones because somebody brought the gospel to us. And if you believe in the gospel, you will be saved. But Jesus is very clear. If we do not believe in the gospel, what will happen to us? We will be condemned. 
The old authorized version was much stronger than this. The old King James Version said, whoever believes will be saved, whoever does not believe will be damned. That is why Charles Simeon had that painting placed above his mantle. That is why he said, look at his eyes. He reminds me not to trifle with this gospel, but to be in earnest. For it is the word of life to those who are perishing. The necessity of the gospel proclamation. Here's something else we have to keep in mind. Matthew chapter 9. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Fewer and fewer people today are going into the ministry of the church. Many seminaries are closing their doors because young people do not want to go into the ministry. It's not glamorous. If you think that the ministry is glamorous, I'd like to sit down with you for a few hours one afternoon and and set you straight on that. There's nothing glamorous about it. It's not high paying. In our culture where there's a great deal of animosity toward the church, it's not any longer a respectable position in many places. And yet, if young people do not come and get trained to go out and share the gospel, what's going to happen to those who do not believe? They're going to be condemned. They're going to perish. That's why Paul was talking as he did there in Romans. How will they hear? How will they believe unless someone preaches to them, and how will someone preach to them unless they are what? Raised up, trained, equipped, sent. It is the most pressing need in the world today for those who are lost to hear the gospel. Just imagine if we could really reach academia. I think academia is one of the greatest mission fields in the world today really is. One of my dear friends, a man who had a profound impact on me, uh, is Bishop Alden Hathaway, retired Episcopal Bishop of Pittsburgh. He was the man who ordained me a deacon at Trinity Cathedral in Pittsburgh many years ago, confirmed me as a kid, ordained me a deacon, then ordained me a priest when I came to the Diocese of South Carolina. He preached my institution when I was the rector at St. Helena's. Then he came to work with me as my bishop in residence, and he is the godfather to my youngest child, Josiah. So we have a long history there. And I'll never forget Bishop Hathaway telling me a story. It took place in Pittsburgh. Um, when he was the Episcopal Bishop of Pittsburgh, he was good friends with the Roman Catholic Bishop, Donald Wuerl, who became the Cardinal of Washington, D.C., And every year around Pentecost, all of the Christian denominations would get together for one big ecumenical service. So you'd have the Lutheran bishop and the Methodist there and the Baptists were there and the Episcopal bishop and the Roman Catholic bishop. And he said we would always hold the service at St. Paul's Cathedral there in Oakland. 
up on Fifth Avenue. It was the Roman Catholic Cathedral there in Pittsburgh. And he said, we would always have this big service. And he said, now Fifth Avenue is where many of the great educational institutions there. The University of Pittsburgh is there. And right across from the Catholic Cathedral is one of the great centers of software technology. And he said, we would always have this, you know, big service. And he said, we would be proceeding out the church. He said, there'd be a cloud of incense, and we'd have the cross, and we'd all be dressed in all of our finery, you know, bishops in their copes and mitres and all of that. And he said, we would come down, the great west doors of the church would be thrown open, and he said, we would step out onto the street, and right across was this center for the training of young people in software technology. And he said, we would look at them, and they would look at us. There we are in all of our medieval finery, and there they are in their ripped jeans and their bag lunches and their soft drinks, and they're looking at us, and we're looking at them, and the question is this, how do you get the gospel across Fifth Avenue? Can you imagine if you can take the gospel to the best and brightest of the land? What a difference that would make. harvest is plentiful, but what? The laborers, they're few. And yet Paul reminds us there is no greater calling in the world. There are many noble call callings. Don't get me wrong. This sounds a little self-serving for me to say that, to say that there's more no more noble calling than to share the gospel, but that's not my opinion. That's the opinion of the scriptures. Turn, if you will, to 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is Paul, and what many regard as his last letter, writing to young Timothy. And this is what Paul says, beginning at verse 1. He's writing to Timothy. Paul's life is coming to an end. He's fought the good fight. He's finished the race. He's imprisoned in Rome at the time that he writes this letter. He knows that his life is coming to an end. He's passing the torch on to this young man, Timothy. Timothy's going to become the new leader in the church. And here's what he says to him. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Charles Simeon, Henry Martin, be earnest, be sober-minded, in season, out of season. It may be that people are surrounding themselves with teachers to say what their itching ears, that's a wonderful expressing, what their itching ears want to say, but as for you, do not neglect the proclamation of the gospel, Timothy. That is the most important thing that a minister can do. 
I can tell you right now, ministers are going to disappoint you at one point or another. They're not going to do everything that you want to do. They're, gonna, they're not always going to remember your name. Sometimes they will not remember your name. Sometimes they'll forget that this is your anniversary or your birthday. Please be kind to us. We are human. But the most important thing that a minister does, and judge your minister on this basis, the most important thing that a minister does is proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the most important thing that a minister can do. I once heard a minister say, the worst thing that can ever be said about you is that you are not available. That is not the worst thing that can be said about a minister of the gospel. The worst thing that can be said about a minister of the gospel is that they neglected the word of the Lord. Because that is what brings life. That's what gives power to a church. That's what transforms hearts. That's what awakens hope. It is the proclamation of the gospel. It's interesting to note that whenever one of our ministers is ordained, there comes a point in the ordination service where they are handed symbols of their office. And sometimes they're given a set of vestments and sometimes they are given a chalice and a patent as a reminder that they have to administer the sacraments and so forth. But the Book of Common Prayer only requires one thing to be given to a minister as a symbol of his office. And do you know what it is? It's a Bible. It's a Bible. It's because all that we do flows out of that one thing, the ministry of God's holy word. If you're coming to hear me speak on Thursdays, you're coming for the wrong reason. I'm just the postman. I just deliver the letter. You come to hear the word of the Lord, the supremacy of the task. It's the most important thing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, this is the final thing I'll leave you with today. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. There are many people out there in the world today that have not heard the good news. Fully one-third of the world's population, it is believed, according to the most recent figures, have never even heard the name of Jesus Christ. Never heard the gospel. And as a result, they're perishing. They're languishing, languishing in unbelief. They're lost in sin and nature's night, as the hymn says. And they need someone to take the gospel to them. But if you have heard the gospel, and you have, then Paul says, now is the day. You have heard. Now is the day to believe. Now is the day to place your trust in him. Now is the day to pass from death to life. For all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we do live in a world in which so many people are lost.
They're like that old country western song, looking for love in all the wrong places and coming up empty, filled with despair, hopelessness. And we have that which brings life. Place upon our hearts a burden for those who have not heard the good news of Jesus Christ. Grant that we might be like Henry Martin, willing to burn out rather than rust out for the sake of the gospel. Put upon us the burden that was in the heart of Charles Simeon, not to trifle with this gospel, but to be in earnest, to be in earnest, and to preach the good news to every creature that all might come within the reach of your saving embrace. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. Mm-hmm. No, and specifically, he's talking there. It applies to everybody in the sense that we're all supposed to share the gospel, but it certainly did apply to the apostles. And so he's dealing specifically.